You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger to anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbing and Matt Smith. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 71 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and joining me via the interweb that is Skype, <laughs> it's my co-host Matt Smith. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, you Hello. are still there. Good, good, good. <laughs> I am. So whereabouts yes, uh, in the yes, UK are you today? Uh, well, I'm very, very close to Heathrow Airport, um, which... Uh, it's very exciting for you, I know. Not so yes. exciting for me because in about three hours, I've got sort of fifty odd passengers worth of cases to load on a nice warm day. So I'm really looking forward to that. But uh, no, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like sounds, sounds like fun. Yeah, not not really. No, unfortunately, the uh, rules have changed slightly. So uh, I was hoping to be able to do this from West Ramp and basically piggyback off their Wi-Fi. Um, uh. But uh, Unfortunately, they only allow you in an hour before the uh, the, the flight actually lands. So uh, I'm uh, sort of sat about two miles away from Heathrow on the rather romantic setting of the A4. Um, I can just see a lovely little BP garage just in front of me. So that's probably <laughs> where I'm going to go and have lunch. Oh, sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah, I know. So we will apologise. I, I really am living life's eternal dream. I, I say we will. We will apologise to our listeners in case uh, Matt does Skype drop out. Uh, it yes. does happen. Um, I'm. 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 I'm actually outside in the on the in the garden. Actually, Matt, on the oh, on the patio yeah. on the table. It's very nice. It's very sunny today. It's a lovely day. Nice Easy. day to be yes, flying. And I'm in my big greenhouse on wheels. Yes. <laughs> I would have said put the air conditioning on, but I know you don't have air conditioning in BT. So no, no, no. no, no. I, so well, it has I been. I, it's oh. not so much that. It's because I can put right there because it does have a, like a forced air system. But if I put that on, it would require me having the engine running. And if I had the engine running for the next two and a half hours, I think my uh, boss would officially kill me. So uh, um. yeah, we won't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here then for episode number 71 and uh date check it is the 1st of august and uh time's where just coming up to july go? i know five past 12 yes where did july go that is a good question well it is summertime so i suppose it's a good thing the summertime is kind of here well you're sitting in the garden so. i know it's lovely <laughs> but it's been lots of new lots and lots of news this week and um Obviously, there was that uh, terrible crash yesterday of the Phenom 300 here in the UK, uh, which crashed yes. on a car lot, which uh, is a terrible shame. Um, but we've got lots of other news stories as well to cover this week. And we've also got uh, our next run of interviews we took at Riyadh this year to plan yes. the show. Mm-hmm. So we better kick things off for the Skype goes doolally. Are you ready? <laughs> so we're going to run before it aborts. I know. <laughs> so we're going to start the show as we always do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt, fingers and toes all crossed with knots tied and anything else I can manage on a warm day. Let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story, then um, uh, it's on Flight Global site. This one, and as m- you, lots of you may know around the world, uh, they have this week found uh, what could be possibly part uh, of uh, the triple seven of MH three seventy that disappeared. 
in March 2014. Uh, preliminary investigations uh, did suggest that an identification number reportedly seen on the debris found in the reunion bears strong similarities to Boeing maintenance classification codes for the 777 trailing edge uh, structure. Widespread reports have claimed that the section of debris which resembles a flapperon, a high-speed aileron of the type, carries a code said to read BB670 or BB67 or 657. There's no formal confirmation of the code's presence or its uh, composition. While the debris has yet to be identified, Boeing's aircraft manufacturer uh, maintenance manual for the 777 shows several components of the starboard wing structure are grouped under the identifier 670. These components include support structures for the flapper-on and inboard control surfaces, which act as an aileron during cruise. The Boeing All Manual also contains uh, the code 657BB, listing it as a leading-edge panel which provides access to the flapper-on actuator. Investigators have yet to carry out a full examination of the debris and have not yet confirmed either the nature of the component or its possible source. Australia's government, which has been overseeing the search effort for debris on the missing Malaysian Airlines MH370, has acknowledged the discovery of the component, uh, simply stating that it appears to have been from a aircraft, or a 777. So I saw the news yesterday, Matt, and um, mm. they were, they'd uh, boxed up and uh, created up this part, and they were sending it, uh, I think, to France. That's right, um, yes, it, it arrived. Um, it, it, that, it was actually making the new- news that it arrived in France as I was getting up for work this morning. Okay. So it arrived in France around about half four, five o'clock. So, uh, yeah. Now, I know that yeah. uh, they'll obviously uh, check this part out for any other serial numbers and they'll try and, obviously, because Boeing, when they produce the aircraft, obviously these serial numbers are matched to the production aircraft number um, for each Indeed. aircraft, individual aircraft. So all the bits are, mm. you know, you can trace a specific part back to an aircraft. So hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be some sort of closure or something to this uh, this whole story. But and also, it might enable them to try and track down with the uh, wind currents of the uh, sea currents as well, or the wind and stuff, where this part may have originated from. Um, Indeed. Well, I mean, as, as you say, Carl, it's it's one of those. I think for everybody's sake, now we need closure on this mm, particular issue. Do yeah. we? We, we? We just need. We just need to know what happens because I think most people have assumed that it was, you know, bad news. We, we're not, we're not going to find the, that they've been abducted or anything like no, that. I think no. it is, you know, the worst possible s- scenario. And uh, the sooner, the sooner that uh, all the answers are there, I think the better for everyone's sake because then everybody can get on, can't they? They can. Yes. You know, Boeing can get on with the dealing with whatever caused, caused it, it yeah. uh, and the yeah. families involved. They can, they can, you know, come you know as come to as peace as possible as you can with such an issue and, and move on to it's just yeah. it must be horrible for everyone just being in not knowing limbo mm. or something like this i mean let's remember as well that these these flight data recorders the black box as they're called which are actually orange um yeah. <laughs> they um they i mean obviously the pingers obviously since ceased to um to generate oh. a tracking yeah. signal but you know these boxes are resilient boxes, and even after you know this amount of time, if they do manage to find the wreckage, they will obviously um, find these the black boxes, the flight data recorder, and the cockpit voice recorder, the CVR, and they can still get the data off those even after this amount of time. Um, so fingers well, crossed. Well, yes, I mean uh, it becomes uh, it becomes uh, it's, it's sort of like it's a sort of solid state hard drive, isn't it? Essentially, mm. so as long as it survived the impact, which is highly likely, given. Yeah. Uh, Given the fact that we've had the black these things explode and the black boxes have survived not only 
the explosion, but you know the data has been retrieved from them. So uh, you know, let's let's hope they do get their hand. You know, they they do find it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this that'll bring closure to this whole um, this whole thing. Let's go. So next story. Moving on. Next story, this is on the Daily Mail website, and the headline is Ryan Airplane makes mid-air U-turn and returns to airport after ground staff forgot to remove luggage from the previous <laughs> flight. Oh, dear, Ryanair. Uh, Ryanair, uh, a Ryanair flight was forced to make a mid-air U-turn after ground staff forgot to unload the previous passenger's luggage. Only 20 minutes after takeoff from Derry Airport in Northern Ireland, en route to Alicante in Spain, the plane had to return. It is believed the captain announced to the cabin that the plane was returning because they had forgotten a bag. Uh, one passenger on board, uh, Melosia Boyle, uh, was clearly shocked at the incident, writing on Facebook, only in Derry. Uh, took off from uh, Egg. Glington Airport for Spain and 20 minutes into the flight. We apologise as we have to turn back. We forgot a bag. Seriously, a U-turn back? The Boeing 737 made a safe landing back at Derry Airport. A spokesperson for Ryanair told Mail Online the flight from Derry to Alicante on the 27th of July returned to Derry shortly after takeoff to unload baggage from the previous flight, which the third-party ground handling agent had failed to remove before takeoff. Oops. The aircraft landed normally. The baggage was removed, and the flight departed to Alicante. Ryanair apologised to customers affected by the short delay. Management at Derry Airport said that they were sorry for any inconvenience caused and that they are reviewing circumstances of the incident. The flight had that had departed at 5.55pm eventually set out for the popular holiday destination of Alicante at 7pm local time. So I think it's safe to say that's a bit of a screw up. Yeah, yes, it's not, not a good uh, thing to have really, I suppose. Is that going, you know, that's uh, uh, kind, no. kind of like travelling from, from our house to Scotland and then forgetting that we'd, you know, Oh, we've left all the house unlocked. Oh, we better go back. Yes. Yes, that, no. that's a bit silly, really, isn't it? But, uh, no. uh, it must be. I mean, uh, they are blaming third-party ground crew, I guess, in in this mm. case. I'm just surprised that, you know, somebody didn't notice that baggages wasn't, baggage wasn't being unloaded. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd have thought that someone would have an alarm bell somewhere. It's, especially thinking, being... Oh, that being, turnaround was very quick. Yeah, look, especially, <laughs> especially as Ryanair were probably charging countless pounds for all these extra cases and stuff that were going to be loaded on for the next flight, you know. They're, they're, they don't want to lose oh, out on that money. Yeah. No. So, moving well, no, absolutely. on. Absolutely. Well, that's probably why they had to turn around and go back. <laughs> and burn all that extra fuel. Oh, next story, moving on, before the Skype goes doolally again. So, on the on the Business Traveller website, this one, and uh, Business Class, the winner in BA747 refit. So, British Airways have revealed more details of the refresh it's giving its uh, 18 of its uh, Boeing 747-400 aircraft, with the Business Travellers benefiting the most. As reported last year, in September, the carrier will have completed refitting the aircraft by August 2016. BA has now confirmed it's upgrading 18 of the High J variant in its Boeing 747 fleet and will be adding another 16 seats to its Club World business cabin with fewer seats in World Traveller economy. So BA's current fleet um, of uh, seven or J High J 747s have 14 seats in first class, 70 in Club World, and 30 in World Traveller Plus or Premium Economy, and 177 in World Traveller, a total of 291 passengers. 
The refurbished super high J configuration will have 14 seats in first, 86 in club world seats in zones B, C and D, and on the lower and upper decks, 30 in World Traveller Plus and 145 in World Traveller, a total of 275 passengers. The airline is also installing a Panasonic EX3 in-flight entertainment system that will provide passengers with more than 130 films and 400 television shows. Every World Traveller Plus seat will have access to a universal power socket capable of accepting plugs from the UK, US and Europe and a personal USB socket. New seat foams will be installed in World Traveller and World Traveller Plus, while new seat covers will also be fitted to match those on BA's A380 and 787 aircraft. The refit will also include a general cabin refresh, including replacing carpets and curtains throughout the plane to bring the older 747s up to date with BA's most recent aircraft. Oh, that's nice if you're a business uh, traveller person, I suppose. Not, not well, for us is, and mere economy no, mortals. No, not <laughs> us mere mortals, yes. <laughs> no, it's... it's yes, in fact... Go on. I can say, in fact, actually, our, our React uh, segment uh, actually includes the interview yes. um, from that, that business rather class. exotic <laughs> exactly. um, plane that you, you, and, um, you and Pip got to oh, have yes. a wander around. And uh, so more on business class later. Yes, yes, definitely, <laughs> yes. So next story. Oh, look, it's a Ryanair uh, next story, one. Yes, this is uh, Ryanair again uh, <laughs> in the headlines, this time with the Mirror, uh, and it's mirror.co.uk, and the headline, Ryanair, Jet's window cover lands on terrified passenger after plane touches down at Stansted Airport. Uh, the Ryanair flight from Gdansk to London Stansted had just touched down when the inside of the window fell out of the frame and landed on Lawrence Gibson. Uh, uh, a holidaymaker was given the shock of his life when an aeroplane he was travelling on uh, landed and the window colour f- cover fell on his lap. Lawrence Gibson, who confesses he is a nervous flyer, uh, which I'm sure, so this, I'm sure <laughs> has done him no harm whatsoever, uh, has been left traumatised by the incident, which took place as the Ryanair flight touched down at London Stansted around 12.30am on July the 26th. The 37-year-old teaching assistant who was returning from a week-long holiday in Gdansk, Poland, was clutching his partner's hand, uh, his partner Matt's hand, uh, to calm himself when the inside of the casement fell onto his knees. He said, um, (laughs) it was the scariest moment of my life. I'm a nervous flyer as it is, but uh, this has just made things a whole lot worse. As soon as we touched down, the inside of the window just fell into my lap. Uh, landing is the worst part for me and I was already clutching Matt's hand before I was absolutely hysterical for a little while Lawrence paid £144 for the return flight which was in the first week of his summer holidays the flight they were on was booked through Ryanair but it is being operated by Air Explore Lawrence said the plane looked a little bit dilapidated not the usual Ryanair standards Uh, to be fair to to the staff though they were really nice about it they couldn't apologise enough a statement from Ryanair said we note the dislodging of this window reveal um, which is used only to protect the window from scratches and uh, we have asked the operator of this leasing aircraft Air Explore to ensure that it doesn't reoccur (laughs) oops when I first saw this story I, I, I just I, 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 I can see the sort of seriousness of it because it obviously does, you know, you know upset yeah. people when they have pieces of aircraft falling off in their hands. But you know, let's let's yes. be let's be clear on this. This is a perspex cover that yeah. uh, is on our side of the window where we sit yeah. as a passenger. It is there purely to stop the 
the actual main glass yeah. being scratched and, and and you know and sort of you know drawn on by children and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, this is not a you know if this falls out in flight, you know, it's not going to suddenly yes. you know, depressurize and. It's- yeah, it was. No, no you know, it's. I mean, I've, I've. I mean, in my many years of traveling around the world on various different airlines, and you know, I've, I've seen various pieces of, of uh, cabin, you know, trim falling off on landings mm. or takeoffs. You know, it's. You know, it's just. It, I, I don't know. For me, I just, I just go. Oh, fair enough. Okay. You know. Well, uh, pop, this it, is pop it, it in the bag say, uh, as a memento, uh, uh, and also it's, it's a bit naughty on on behalf of because i mean it's been reported quite widely in the press i mean we've chosen the mirror as our uh, as 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 our source but uh, uh it's been quite badly reported frankly by most of the media because the way that you initially read it it does actually sound like the window fell out and certainly when i yeah. when i first mm. read that story i was i i thought a window had fallen out of a ryanair thing and of course i got visions of masks dropping down you know cabin depressurizing <laughs> yeah. all this kind of thing when you actually go into it you realize as you say it's just like the 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 little perspex cover that they put in so hmm. um you know it, it's it's ty- well it's typical british press let's be honest it's, blowing you know, things out of something that is yeah. sensational you know hmm. so we'll leave that one there we'll go on to the next story <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry he, he was traumatized oh, um, no, I know. but uh, i think unfortunately perhaps he he needs to grow a pair if he's going to you know it's just <laughs> if like, he's going to fly right now one of those yeah. things so well, next... yes i know but you know <laughs> As I say, unless the glass came out in my hand, you know, I'm a nervous flyer, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, you know, if the armrest comes off in my hand, I'm not going to have a packet, you know, a panic attack about it. So No, if, I mean, if know. the window falls out and, it, and it, it's taking my warm panini and coffee with it out yes. the window, then I would be, you know, I'd be rather upset. You know, well, more losing... because of how because you will have spent all that money on it. Exactly, so, you know, you, know. Uh, which you will have very much begrudged in the first place. If I my know my, you, my so. lukewarm <laughs> my lukewarm soggy panini will be going out the window. Oh, yeah, I'd be devastated by that. I, I, can, I can imagine. Anyway, shall we move on before yes. we end up with some litigation later on the, in the break? Oh, let's move on to the next story then on the uh, Malaysian Insider site. And uh, this one is must-know facts about checked carry-on baggage allowances air for air travel in Europe. So we covered a story on this a few episodes back about the um, changes in sizes to carry-ons um, for various airlines. Um, and maximum size and weight additional pieces of carry-on baggage allowed online baggage fee payment baggage policies can wa- uh, vary widely from airline to another, making it difficult for passengers to sort out those complicated and sometimes confusing restrictions. At the height of summer travel season, there is a rundown of major um, or a rundown of major European carriers with the least uh, to most flexible policies. Um, so we can see here on the site in front of us then, that uh, it should be noted that the maximum allowed weight of these personal items can differ. British Airways, for example, is the least restrictive with a 23 kilo allowance uh, compared to only 5 kilos for Thomson Airways. Um, unlike their British counterparts, however, TAP or Portugal and Air Europa don't uh, do not allow additional pieces of baggage at, at all. Uh, generally speaking, flag carriers and nation, uh, national airlines restrict carry-on baggage to 8 kilos, Finnair and Lufthansa, and 12 kilos with Air France. As for baggage dimensions, the maximum size is generally the same, 55 by 40 by 20 centimetres. Low-cost carriers have far less flexibility policy with uh, the exception of EasyJet and Wizz Air, which do not set a limit. No, I didn't know that, Matt. No, I didn't. 
And bear in mind that uh, baggage fees can soon add up as well, doubling or tripling the price of your low-cost airfare if your baggage mm. exceeds the maximum allowed weight or size. Uh, you'll have to pay an excess baggage charge that can run as high as €60. Euros, uh, whose charges um, uh, are the most expensive, which are Velotia, whoever they are. I've never heard of that airline. Not heard of excess either, baggage either. charges will generally cost you between €25 Euros, um, of JetBlue Airways and €50 Euros with Ryanair. €50 Euros of Ryanair, so that's what? That's about £45, pounds, isn't it, in English, Sterling? Uh, well, or, 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 or £50 pounds sterling. Yeah. So yeah, avoid they round um, it up, don't they? So, so yeah. it's <laughs> they round it up, yeah. It, that that'd be twenty five yeah. quid, so we'll round up to fifty. To avoid paying extra charges, you should also bear in mind the maximum allowed baggage size. Transavia and Wizair are the least flexible, with restrictions of forty two by forty by twenty five centimeters and forty two by thirty two by twenty five centimeters, respectively. Iberia Express, Valetia, Ryanair, JetBlue Airways and Norwegian, on the other hand, allow an additional piece of baggage in addition to the passenger's carry-on baggage. When you fly with checked baggage, it's it's best to pay for any additional pieces during the online booking process. The cost varies between €15 and €45, but can reach as much as €75 with Ryanair. Uh, when settled at the check-in counter, so be sure to check the weight and the size of your baggage. I mean, it goes on a bit more, but uh, you know, the the basic th- rule of thumb, I think, Matt, is if you're going to fly with an airline and you're taking uh, a, a piece of cabin baggage, it's always best to check, you know, on their website if you can, uh, or give them a call to to mm. find out exactly what dimensions and weights are allowed when you're flying, uh, uh, you know, as a passenger on these aircraft. I mean, we I check, I always check every year. I don't know why I do, but I just do every time, just to sort of make sure that you know nothing's changed, and I have the tape measure out, you know, measuring the depth and the the length and the and the width of the case mm. and stuff that when we take on uh, hand luggage. I don't know whether you do the same. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, m- Mum usually checks. That sort of thing. She's a lot better about that sort of thing than I am, probably. Um, but uh, yeah, to be honest, your, your approach just makes well what I call good common sense. Frankly, I mean, you, you've got to accept that legislation rules change all the time. So it, it's the same way, like with my job, for example. You know, the the road rules are changing all the time. You can't just base you know base yourself on the fact that when you passed your test eight years ago, you knew everything you needed to know. You've got to you've got to keep you've got to keep on top of. of of the changes you know mm. you've got to keep up to date so so yeah it's um i I'm, I'm surprised there are people not doing what what you're suggesting to be tell you one of the best things that i ever brought make a lot of sense. um on on the interweb was one of those little digital handheld uh, scales the mm. handheld weighing scales one of the best things i ever brought you can get them on yeah. various websites you know online if you just type in handheld digital case scales and, yeah. um, you know, it's worth its weight in gold because you can just, you know, when you've got your cases packed, you can just sort of hold it there and, and test the weight of your bag before you travel. And, I mean, we've flown many, many different airports around the world, um, me and my mm. wife Gemma, and um, literally, I think, probably nine times out of ten, you know, our scales are literally bang on with the airport scales. Um, well, but- um, and because you've had that experience, I mean, if somebody suddenly said, "Oh, you need to pay an excess weight charge or whatever," you know, you you've got, you you know, you've got experience if you like to argue the toss with them and say, "Well, mm. your scales are wrong. Check them on something else." And they um, do. I think say- I think they actually do have a they do have some sort of um, 
rule or something. I think that you know, if you do challenge their scales, they do have to produce some sort of some sort of um, yeah. uh, certificate to say that those scales have been properly checked. Yeah. Well, I think that's a brilliant idea, actually. To be honest with you, I, sh- I shall probably pop online. More- but as soon as I get home and, and, and order exactly the same thing, to be honest, Carl, because, yeah, that's not something I thought about it. I mean, when I came back from New Zealand, um, I had to pay an excess baggage sort of mm. thing. Um, that was with Malaysian Airways. But that, that was kind of uh, my own fault because I'd gone a bit mad, bought lots of souvenirs know, <laughs> to bring Beer. home for everyone. And uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that, that was fair enough. But, uh, yeah, really, it's um, it, there's no excuse. For, as you say, these little devices are so cheap, aren't they? And yeah, I mean, you're talking about a fiver. You've just got to check the, mm. the, the, the rules on a regular basis and then you can avoid the, these fees that everybody's complaining about. Ah, there we go. Food for everyone. There, a bit of inform, a bit of a uh, bit of good good uh, information there for you listening in. Go and get yourself some K scales. The wife. Anyway, hello, to, hello, on wife. To the next story. Then <laughs> this is uh, on. The, sorry, we have to excuse the delay, ladies and gentlemen. We are struggling a bit, but Carl is doing his best. Yes, I'm doing my best. Uh, <laughs> so apologies if I keep interrupting you, mate. Um, right, it is Mail Online. No change there. He says At Mail Online. Uh, the headline <laughs> is Book the last flight of the day and never enter the security queue on the right. How to get through airport security as quickly as possible? Uh, ask any holidaymaker to describe their most stressful experiences while flying, and many will tell you the nightmarish tales about airport inconveniences. From problems with luggage at the check-in desk to long queues at security, every traveller seems to have a pre-flight horror story. But getting from curb to gate doesn't have to be filled with drama or anxiety, as there are plenty of steps passengers can take to breeze through the airport as quickly and as stress-free as possible. Uh, Fast track, no... Who uh, a traveller enjoys waiting in a long queue at security checkpoint, especially when they're forced to watch others hold up the process after packing prohibited items uh, in their hand luggage. Some airports offer fast track service for a small fee, usually around three to four pounds, which allows passengers to skip the regular queues. At Manchester Airport, for example, travellers can pay three pound fifty for access to a dedicated lane that is meant to get them through security quickly. In the US, citizens who meet the requirements can sign up for pre-check or global entry services with the Transport security administration it offers uh, this uh, it provides sorry access to a special queue helping them to avoid long lanes at uh, long lines at security the service is not available to foreign visitors other than canadian citizens who are members of nexus uh, for some holidaymakers, there is nothing more frustrating than arriving at a security checkpoint hand baggage scanner and being stuck behind someone who hasn't bothered to prepare Oh, I hate this. I don't know if this happens to you, Carl. It just winds me so up. There's so many oh, yeah. signs up saying, you know, that you must take your laptop out and that must go through separately. Take off your belt, change it. And Every the amount time. of times you get mm. there and that they haven't separated all of their, um, you know, they haven't put stuff in the clear bag, you know, like the 100 mil um, liquids Little and bottles, things. Yeah, the amount yeah. of people who haven't done that is terrifying. But uh, anyway, no travellers... Sorry. <laughs> carry on, sorry. This Skype delay is... <laughs> carry on, Mr Smith. Sorry, I'll carry on. Uh, yes. Travellers can save time by removing their belts, jewellery and jackets in advance or packing them in checked luggage. Having their non-restricted liquids uh, in containers of 100 millilitres or less ready in a small resealable plastic bag. Removing change from their pockets and pulling out their electronic devices such as laptops before approaching the screening point. Have your boarding pass and identification such as a passport ready. 
thanks to the internet and smartphone apps, it's never been so easy to check in uh, for a flight as it is now. Uh, long gone are the days when passengers would have to arrive at the airport even earlier to queue and speak to an agent. With a few clicks of the mouse or a few taps of a mobile phone screen passengers can check in select their seats and set their carry-on baggage uh, amount um, flights that depart first thing in the morning or late at night can be the best option for those who are flexible and looking to avoid the crowds the queues are shorter the departure lounge isn't rammed and there isn't as much traffic on the roads. the only downside may be a disturbed sleeping pattern but we don't worry about that especially when we live in our part of the world <laughs> uh, holidaymakers who are jetting abroad on a short break or are in a position to pack likely should take a carry-on and avoid checking in a bag not only is this a way to avoid fees uh, but uh, those who don't bother to check in a bag can quite often don't quite often don't have to queue uh, at the luggage drop before departing or the baggage claim after arriving as soon as the plane uh, lands they can grab their bag and, and if it's an international flight head uh, head for the exits after clearing passport control uh, those who are flying with checked luggage should weigh it in advance uh, if they fear it exceeds the limit as advice that uh, carlos was giving us just a moment ago there are several apps uh, holidaymakers can download to their electronic devices to make their traveling lives go much easier some allow airport visitors to reserve a parking spot in advance whilst others can book a spot on a lounge where they can relax and grab a bite to eat before jetting off. In the US, the MyTSA app allows passengers to check the current wait times and find the shortest security queues. Uh, let someone else carry your bag. Now, I thought this was a big no-no, it has to be said. Anyway, <laughs> there are a growing number of companies that are willing to pick up travellers' luggage at their home hotel or office and transport it to the airport for a fee. Well, I didn't know that. Airporter provides the service for those who are flying out of or into London Gap. Wick or City Airport starting from just £15. But with the bags um, being out of their care, travellers will have to answer yes when airline staff or airport security ask if their luggage has been out of their sight. Yes. Now that's a big no-no, isn't it? I know, it's one of those things you always hear. Do not leave your baggage unattended. Exactly. Or with anyone else. I mean, I suppose you haven't left it unattended, but somebody else has collected it from your home and taken it for you. That's one of those questions you get asked, you know, did you pack your own bags? Well, yes, I did, but I've let someone else carry it for me. Oh, okay. Um, Oh, right, okay. Well, you're going to be searched from Mm. top to toe. Every orifice inspected. But I will will Uh, say that, Matt, I am am one of these people who have, we both have, me and my my wife, Gemma, have tried the you know the fast track security thing. Paid the, I think it was like it was like six quid for both of us, something like that. Yeah. And I I have to admit, it, I know it's a bit of a fad. Um, a lot mm. of people think it's a bit of a fad, but it works. It's worked for Does me it? every time. Oh yes, we've we've bypassed hundreds of people in yeah, queues. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and walked straight through the um, the, you know the uh, the door the, the um. Uh, you know the, the metal detector doors and the X-ray screening for your bags just gone straight through, mm. straight through into departure lounge. No, well, I queuing. mean the standard's been hitting the headlines quite regularly uh, of late uh, for exactly that, hasn't it? With with long, long queues at, at airport security mm. for some reason. I, I don't know. Do they offer something similar at Stansted? Mm, yeah, I think it was at Stansted. We we tried. I think one of the first times we tried it was at Stansted um, and Gatwick as well. We've had it there. We've used it there. 
Um, and I think also, I think we we tried it as well at Luton. I think Luton have got the fast track thing. I'm pretty sure we, we've tried it there as well. And you can pay for it there and then. You can actually walk up to the area and uh, pay, put your money in a little sort of box, you know, in a machine, and it prints you out the, the uh, little ticket so you can just fast track yourself through if there's queues. Because there's not always queues, but yeah, nine times out of ten there are queues. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's going to be busy, isn't it? Because, you know, the flight wouldn't be leaving if it had hardly got anyone on it these days. I mean, they... You know, so I have to admit, if, be... if I could have a choice of having a fast track option somewhere, it would be the fast track option at passport control when you return to the UK. Right. Because when we flew back into, um, oh blimey, Stansted this year, mm. early this year, yeah. from uh, Lanzarote, um, you know, yeah. you, you got there and there was, there was four desks open in a line of right. ten. And there was kind of Gosh. sort of three flights of people all trying to, you know, trying to get their passports looked at. Not good. Mm. That's where but you need a fast no, track. Well, and, and very slow as a result, isn't mm. it? Mm. So moving on to the yes. next story. And this is on the Business Traveller site. And uh, the, the headline, BA Downsizers Carry On Baggage Allowance. Ooh. Following on then from that. We've had a lot oh, of baggage stories today, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So British Airways is reducing the size of carry-on baggage permitted on board its flights. From August the 18th, the size of each passenger's personal handbag laptop bag can be no larger than 40 by 30 by 15 centimetres so that it can be stowed beneath the seat in front. The current maximum size allowed is 45 by 36 by 20 centimetres. The airline will continue to allow passengers to take two pieces of hand luggage into the cabin and the size of the second main cabin bag will remain unchanged at 56 by 45 by 25. BA said the move is a result of an increase in customers travelling with hand baggage that exceeds their allowance. I've seen that before. Uh, well mm. Traveller Economy and Well Traveller Plus Premium Economy passengers will receive a yellow tag for handbags and laptop bags that are within the new dimensions. Once tagged, BA says it guarantees this bag will be allowed on board. Passengers with the hand baggage that exceeds the new dimensions will be asked to check it into the hold while on very busy flights where their overhead lockers are full. Some passengers may be asked to check their baggage without yellow tags into the hold as well. Also on August the 18th, the carrier is changing the way um, in which passengers board their flights with the order determined by cabin and executive class status. Well, traveller passengers will then be asked to board uh, by seat row number. Uh, BA said in a statement, We know that customers want their flights to leave on time, so we're looking at a number of initiatives to help us maintain punctuality. We're asking customers to help us to achieve this by adhering to our hand baggage allowance. Oh, so there we go, BA. Uh, they're, they're following the form of everyone else in the world, I think, by adjusting hand baggage uh, sizes. Mm. I mean, you know what it's but like. But then I, I had a, a similar experience uh, to, to what they're describing. They're coming back from Edinburgh, landing at Stansted. And I think I, I, think I said when, when I came back from, from the wedding I'd gone to and um, they were asking for people to, or they, they were sort of more or less insisting after a certain point in the line that, that our baggage had to then go uh, in the hold and, and I actually mm. spat my dummy out a little bit because I'd got <laughs> I, we'd taken the wedding video and I'd got all the wedding video with yeah. me you know and they're asking me to put this very expensive sort of three terabyte hard drive into the hold and I out and out refused um, too but, right um, well uh, no, 
normally I wouldn't. Normally I'd be quite happy to. You know, I'm. You know, because it, it's like, well, you know, as long as I can take my tablet with me, that's fine. Everything can go underneath. But on this one occasion, I, I was absolutely adamant that this bag was not going in the hold. I needed it with me all the time. All the whole time. Was well, you know what you've got to do next time. You want time. to explain to the. You've got, you've got, you know what you've got to do next time? No, go on. Wear your plain talking UK t-shirt. Ah, mm. yes, yes. I should do that for more travelling. And, and <laughs> Yes, and then just sort of carry a microphone around with me and a wire, even if it's not plugged into anything, just in case. <laughs> just, just sort of, I'm live and I will put out some bad press about you. <laughs> yes, I should say some bad things. On the other hand, in the fact that I berate um, Ryanair sort of at least once a week, um, yes, maybe do. I ought to not wear the T-shirt for fear of them not allowing me on the flight. <laughs> no? okay. I, I'm just trying to remember do, if we follow Ryanair on our Twitter account. I'll, I'll have to look I think that we one do. I think yes, we no, do, you did yeah. when, when they reactivated the account. And, ah, and yes, yes, yes. We, oh, yes, we did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So we do, we do like them. them. They're lucky I haven't sent them any abuse yet then. Anyway. Uh, <clears> Next story. <laughs> <laughs> Next story, yes. Wait, oh God, this, this really is going to be a fascinating show for the lawyers, isn't it? Um, uh-huh. it, it is the headline. Uh, the website is travelmall.com and the headline is Eurowings to launch Vienna flights. Eurowings oh, will Vienna. launch flights from London Stansted to Vienna this autumn. From November the 9th, flights will operate six times a week. Uh, Vienna International Airport will be the first Eurowings location outside of Germany. It will also fly from Vienna to Rome, Barcelona and Palma de Mallorca this winter. Flights will be offered by Aus- Austrian Airlines as a co-chair, as a co-chairing flights. Yeah. Uh, I do, that's one of those destinations yeah. that I've always thought I'd like to, uh, to try. I think... Uh, yeah, I, so lots of people have said sort of... Because I've, I've always wanted to do exactly the same thing, but the amount of people who said to me, "Oh, yeah, I, I wanted to," and then I was really disappointed because it, it really stank, apparently. And it says, "Yeah, but you, you've hmm. got to try it once, haven't you?" It's you know, a cultural part water. of Europe, I think. Uh, Vienna, I think. Absolutely. W- yeah. Would you like to and go to Vienna? Anyway, wife? For us, us lot, Sorry, I'm just asking the wife whether she'd like to go to Vienna. Yeah. yeah, she would. When she's finished painting the, finished painting the fence. <laughs> oh. Yes, when she's finished painting the fence, she'd love to go to Vienna. Oh, splendid. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, that's it. And so what, you sitting there watching your wife paint the yeah, fence? Yeah, I have to say to the listeners that I'm, I'm, we're currently sitting here recording the show and I'm, I'm looking across the garden at my wife who's painting our fence at the moment. Um, good on her. She's giving me yes. a smile now and she's shaking her head and stuff. A smile? Well, a smile. I, I, I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you are. <laughs> she will Hope, get her own back. Hopefully, I'll be here for next week, episode seventy-two. Um, yes, if you survive for for episode seventy-two, who knows? The jury is out on that one, frankly. <laughs> so, moving on, next story on Flight Global. Then, are you still there? <laughs> I am. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's your story. It's my story. Sorry, I'm miles away. So, Flight Global. And uh, for for those of you who remember... um, It's the excitement of watching your wife. I know, I know. For for those of you who remember the Airbus incident with BA, um, which had the engine cowling uh, come off and uh, cause an engine fire uh, in over London, I think it was a year a year ago now. I think that happened. It was in May. I think it was May. No, it was May two thousand thirteen. Um, Airbus are examining a open cowl cockpit warning for the A three twenty Neo. So Airbus is considering implementing a cockpit warning system for the A three twenty Neo, which would alert pilots if the engine fan cowling doors are not secure. 
the uh, system would monitor the condition of the cowls, locks and provide a warning to the crew if they were unlatched. Airbus is looking at making such a system available from, uh, for service entry of the re-engined aircraft type, which is scheduled to take place before the end of this year. It would form a part of a rethink uh, of the problem of cowl loss, particularly in the wake of the British Airways Airbus A319 event in May 2013, in which both engines shed their cowls on takeoff. The right-hand engine's fuel system was damaged, resulting in a fuel leak and fire. UK investigators remarked that this was by far the most serious of the 38 cowl loss incidents to date involving the A320 family. Uh, the airframer has previously uh, resisted pressure from investigators to re- uh, devise a warning system, citing complexity, weight and cost, believing that a solution to unlatched cowls lay in a simpler measure centred on the locks. But measures including high visibility paint on the latches and mechanisms designed to keep unlocked cowls uh, slightly open have not proven as effective as desired. While the rate of incidents has halved since 2002 to around 1 in 2.4 million cycles, the proliferation of the A320 has resulted in twice as many cowl losses involving aircraft with these measures in place. Airbus says it was adopting a multifaceted approach to preventing the problem which will encompass design and operational training aspects. As well as the cockpit warning system uh, considered for the A320neo, the airframe has been developing a new latch system for current A320 models. This involves a dedicated key uh, to open the latch which, uh, to which is attached a red warning flag. The key cannot be removed while the latch is open so the flag will dangle visibly below the engine nacelle uh, of the cowl if it hasn't been closed but not locked. Airbus says it intends to make the latch a line fit on production aircraft and the mechanism will be available to, as a retrofit from early 2016. Mechanical solutions will be incorporated in parallel on the A320neo, the airframer adds. The manufacturer has also revised maintenance procedures to require an entry into the aircraft's logbook when the cowls are open, which has to be closed off once the cowls have been shut and latched. Investigators have attempted to determine uh, the contributing elements to the A320 cowl loss events by analysing the circumstances and of uh, the recorded incidents. So it goes on a little bit there, but I mean, it just basically this is this is something that that I think should have been there in the first place, don't you? This is an important part of the a cover that covers the engine um, itself. You know, it, it encases the engine to protect it from the elements. You know, and it's um, it not being locked mm. properly. Well, yeah, as you say, I'm surprised that you know, bearing in mind that you've got alarms for landing gear, you've got alarms for mm. luggage bays not being mm. shut properly, yep. you've yep. got Cargo alarms doors, yep. for doors not being shut mm. properly, all that sort of thing. As you say, anything like that, anything to do with flaps or or, or anything like that, you, you'd, you'd have thought that would have been there by standard. I mean, is it on, is it only Airbus that have got this problem? I mean, do Boeing have an alarm system I on there already? I don't know. Perhaps uh, some of our listeners might be able to tell us. But I mean, it, I thought I would have thought it would be something that would be standard fit. You know, on something yeah. as important as this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Really, it, 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 it all seems a bit strange. It's a bit bit late to the party on that one, by the sound of it. <sighs> so, moving on, next story. Indeed, yes. Next story. This is Flight Global. Uh, again and uh, the headline is JAL 767 crew mistook uh, taxiway for runway. Japan Airlines JAL has suspended the crew of a Boeing 767-300ER that mistakenly commenced 
their takeoff run on a taxiway at Singapore's International Airport. Oops. The incident occurred while the aircraft was operating uh, flight JL38 to Tokyo uh, at roughly 2.30 in the morning on the 12th of July, says JAL in an email to Flight Global. The carrier only learned of the incident on the 23rd of July when it was contacted by Sing- the Singapore authorities. It adds that uh, immediately after starting the takeoff run, the crew realised their error and aborted the takeoff. The aircraft was subsequently directed to the runway and departed without further incident. There were 10 crew and 198 passengers on board the aircraft during the incident. Flight Global's Ascend fleet database shows that the aircraft involved bears registration JA606J. It was delivered in 2003 and is powered by General Electric CF6 engines. Now, this is a very odd mistake because uh, presumably it's not the first time that this particular crew have flew into and out of this airport, surely. I know it, it's something... Yeah. <laughs> You know, these the taxiways and runways are marked, obviously, by markers and lights. And mm. um, one of the things that we, you know, I learned is the basics, basics of um, learning to fly, uh, what particular colours and which sort of particular mm. colour markers and stuff are at the ends and the, the, the um, threshold and the taxiway markings and, and stuff like that, you know. And to mistaken, uh, you know, mistake a taxiway for a runway. Mm. And taxiways aren't, you know, all that long. Um, no, that's, uh, no. That there should have been an alarm bell there, really. Mm. There? <laughs> it's just, I, I, it doesn't make sense, as you say. You've got the, um, you've you've got the fact that the, obviously there's two pilots, isn't there? There's the pilot and the co-pilot. I mean, surely one or other of them should have noticed that they were that they were doing something they shouldn't have done. I thought, you mm. know, I, I sort of assumed that's one of the reasons I mean, why, it, why there were two pilots. It doesn't say in this story just how far they got. It just says uh, here that they commenced their takeoff mm. run. I mean, you know, thanks, you know, praise everyone that, that you know, they actually sort of saw their mistake and, and aborted the takeoff roll in time um, mm. before the end of the taxiway. Um, but um, no, it's uh, like it says that, that they've been suspended. So I expect there'll be some big investigations into that. And um, and the seven six seven, as you know, Matt, the seven six seven is not a small aircraft. It's a wide body, you know, uh, twin aisle aircraft. Um, the three hundred ER. So yeah, that could have ended a bit worse than it did. Could so. have ended much much worse than it did. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So on to our last uh, part of the news segment. We have this week um, not only a top ten, but we've we've we've, we've got we've surpassed that. We've got we've got a top twenty. <laughs> so, right, okay. What what's this one then, Matt? Uh, well, this is the twenty best airlines in the world. Ah, twenty best airlines in the world. Indeed, yes, and I'm afraid the numbers have all gone screwy on here. I. I sh- I'll attempt to reload the page because it starts at number two on mine for some reason. I don't know quite what's going. Oh no, on no, here. That, that, that's uh, I think that's an issue with the um, with the way they've done this top ten on here. But uh, right. we'll we'll muddle on anyway. Okay. So yes, the, indeed. Okay, so where are we going to start? We're going to start at the, at the top we'll, or the bottom. We'll start at we'll start at number twenty. I'm, I'm just flicking. We'll I'm just flicking through madly towards the first. <laughs> there we go towards the first okay. page. So uh, I can, uh, um... Maybe I should sing a song while you're just. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay then. If you are ready, are you ready? Uh, I'm just nearly there. We're God. This is this is terrible. For, honestly, what are we like? <laughs> Hopefully, that we'll have some listeners le- left next week. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers and toes all crossed. So it's, starting uh, off. Well, at 
so uh, if you are ready then, ladies and gentlemen, this is the 20 best airlines in the world. world. Starting at number 20. So at number 20 then, it's our airline here, our flag carrier in the UK. It's British Airways. Number Although 20. I know. It's terrible, isn't it? Although British Airways didn't take home any superlatives on of, at the award show, the airline cracked the top 20 list by putting in a solid performance. Skytrax reviewers gave BA consistent middle-of-the-road ratings across the board for value, in-flight entertainment, staff service and seat comfort. Number 19. Number 19, it's Thai Airways. And... Uh, why they're awesome. Well, Thai Airways has long been an industry leader of quality service, so it's not it's no surprise to find the Thai national carrier so high up on the list. Although its uh, mo- uh, most heralded products are its business and first class, flyers around their economy seats uh, are of high quality as well. Economy flyers on Skytrax also noted the crew's friendly demeanour and delectable dining options. However, some customers found the lack of seat-back-mounted personal entertainment displays on some of their fleet's older Airbuses and Boeing jets to be disappointing. Hmm. Number 18. And at number 18, it's Dragonair. And uh, the uh, why it's awesome again, uh, the headline on that one, is Dragonair's is uh, Hong Kong's ba- uh, based Cathay Pacific's regional subsidiary and is the only regional airline to crack the top 20. In fact, Skytrax named Dragonair the world's best regional airline, an honour that the airline has also held in 2010 and 2011. Number 17. And number 17, it's Air New Zealand. G'day, Grant. <laughs> Why it's awesome, Air New Zealand achieved an impressive feat at the 2015 World Airline Awards. The Kiwi Airlines swept the awards for the premium economy, winning the, for the world's best premium economy class, world's best premium economy seat, and world's best premium economy catering. Oh. The, uh, Maybe they should be the world's best then. <laughs> well, this is the fourth time that Air New Zealand has won uh, for best premium economy. Wow, I think we should be flying Air New Zealand. Definitely, yeah, yeah. They don't do that much out of London, it has to be said. Mainly mm. back to New Zealand. Well, we should go to New Zealand. <laughs> so, at absolutely, well, I've been. I should. I would strongly recommend it. It's uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Auckland is stunning. But anyway, that's for another time. Number 16. Number 16, Virgin Australia, an airline that my uncle and auntie are flying on at the end of uh, October, I think. Um, they're the, a bit at, as the biggest airline in billionaire Richard Branson's portfolio of Virgin brands, Virgin Australia has experienced a massive growth in the Asia-Pacific market since its founding in 2000. In typical Virgin fashion, the airline's fleet of long-haul Boeing 777 aircraft and Airbus A330 jets come with interior mood lighting and feature state-of-the-art 9-inch touchscreen entertainment systems. Mm, That's nice. Number 15. Number 15, bonjour. It is Air France and Air France's 10th place um, improvement over the past year earned the airline the honour of being named the world's most improved airline. Although the carrier has suffered through a series of labour financial issues, the company has rolled out an impressive lineup of new offerings. This includes the highly impressive new La Première first class routes. Oh, sweet. Very good. There we go. Very impressed. That's good. good pronunciation there, Carl. Yes, I, I, I did get I did get a, a, an F in France. Did my, you? My GCSEs, <laughs> yes. yes. But less you about meant, that, yeah. the better. 
<laughs> number 14. At number 14. My Swiss is not better. Uh, so Swiss International Airlines at number 14. And Swiss International Airlines emerged in 2002 from the remnants of the now defunct uh, Swiss Air and is now a member of the Lufthansa corporate family. The Basel-based uh, airline now employs a relatively young fleet of Airbus A330-300s and A340-300 wide-body jets for long-haul routes. Though some flyers found economy seat comfort to be lacking, most praised the cabin crew for its friendly service and airlines for its uh, for its wide assortment of complimentary adult beverages. Hmm. Sounds good. Adult beverages. I, I presume they mean alcohol by that. They don't mean sort of you know late night sort of entertainment. No, no. I don't think so. No. <laughs> So, at number, number 13. At number 13, and lucky for some, but not this airline, Austrian Airlines, though uh, the Lufthansa-owned airline has uh, had to work its hard, or work, had to work its way through a series of labour disputes, its high level of service seems to have remained intact. The Austrian flag carrier boasts a fleet of newly renovated long-haul Boeing 767-300ERs and 777-200 jets flying out of its Vienna base. Economy Flies gave the Star Alliance member high marks for its efficient and effective service, as well as the wealth of onboard dining and entertaining options. Number 12. At number 12, then, it's Lufthansa, the German oh. national carrier. So Europe's largest airline has undergone significant budget cuts in recent years, but its service and overall quality is still exceptional. In fact, Lufthansa comes close to the top of the list by receiving solid, if not spectacular, scores across the board. For the most part, Lufthansa's long-haul service is very, is very good, but for the best results, it would be wise to aim for the fleet's newer A380 Super Jumbos and the 747-8 Intercontinental. That's the new, brand, brand new 747. There we go. So at number... Number 11. At number 11, it's Asiana. And for the second year in a row, South Korea's Asiana takes the top prize for best economy class and best economy class catering. Skytrack's reviewers gave the Seoul-based airline full marks for its staff service, and Asiana currently operates a fleet of relatively new Airbus and Boeing jets. Number 10. And number 10, good eye, mate. It's uh, Qantas. Uh, I know. Hello, Stephen Grant. Sorry. Uh, Qantas, then, despite suffering uh, through a series of severe financial struggles, the quality of Qantas service has not suffered. The airline received praise for its strong customer service and in flight entertainment. And there's uh, also Qantas calling card. It has a, fa- a fatality free safety record in the jet era. Wow. Well, that's that screwed then by by publishing that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't put up a jinx on anything there. But yeah, no, that's amazing. good. That's a good to be able to say that, you know, because Qantas have oh, been yeah. going a lot of years. So at number nine, number nine, Eva Air, uh, Taiwan's Eva Air, pronounced Eva Air, was Vaunts, uh, founded in uh, 1989 and is an offshoot of global container shipping giant Evergreen Group. The Taipei, oh, thanks for that. Taipei-based carrier has grown that, immensely yeah. <laughs> in the past two decades, and now operates a large fleet of Airbus and Boeing wide-body jets. The airline is credited with pioneering the premium economy cabin, and Eva also took home the, um, the prize for the world's best airline cabin cleanliness. Mm. Number eight. So at number eight, it is Garuda Indonesia. So Garuda Indonesia. Uh, 
after being deemed unsafe to fly into European Union from 2007 to 2009, Garada Indonesia has experienced a dramatic turnaround in recent years. The Indonesian flag carrier has undergone, uh, undertaken extensive fleet renewal and service improvements uh, measures to regain the trust of both flyers and safety regulators. Economy flyers have raved about the airline's comfortable seats and selection of Southeast Asian cuisine. This March, Guada in uh, Guada Air became uh, a full-fledged member of the Sky Team Global Al- Airline Alliance. Hmm, good on them. Ooh. Number seven. Number seven, it's ANA, or Al Nippon Airways. Al Nippon Airways is the largest international carrier in Japan and home to one of the world's largest fleets of the 787 Dreamliner. ANA drew high praise from Skytrax reviewers across the board, scoring near-perfect scores for cleanliness, service and safety. Many of its planes feature slide-forward-style reclining seats that increase overall privacy, as well as power and USB outlets in ev- even in economy. Well, that's good. I like that. Mm, absolutely. Number six. Number six, it's uh, Etihad Airways and uh, Abu Dhabi-based Etihad Airways is the flag carrier of the United Arab Emirates, with its Airbus and Boeing fleet travelling to about 96 destinations. Some of its special features include noise reduction headphones and mood lighting in the cabin that's adjusted to keep the passengers well rested. Oh, I like that. Absolutely. Number five. Number five. It's um, one of my favourites, Emirates. Uh, (laughs) Over the past 10 years, Dubai's Emirates has developed into one of the world's premier long-haul carriers, operating almost exclusively through its partial hub or palatial hub at uh, Dubai's International Airport. The carrier boasts the world's largest fleet of Airbus A380 Super Jumbos and Boeing 777 wide-body jets. Emirates' state-of-the-art in-flight entertainment system, which is awesome, includes a wide selection of video and music options on demand and even allows for live television on some ICE entertainment system-equipped 777 aircraft. In fact, Emirates has taken home Skytrack's award for best in-flight entertainment 10 years running. Wow. Good on them. Number four. Number four, Turkish Airlines. Now, uh, Turkish Airlines is a flag carrier for Turkey, uh, with a hub in the increasingly popular travel destination of Istanbul. The airline breaks records with its available destinations flying to over 100 countries and over 200 cities worldwide. The airline is extremely fast-growing and is a member of the Star Alliance and has won the Skytrax Award for Best Airline in Europe five years in a row. God, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, lo- I love the fact that it says Star Alliance. It's, I-, I feel there should be a Star Alliance and a Rebel Alliance. Do you know? <laughs> a Rebel I mean, Alliance. It's very Star Warsy. But it's... <laughs> David, David Vanderhoff would love that over at the Airplane Geeks because yeah, he's a Star Wars fan. No, me too. Yeah. I'm a massive Star Wars fan. Oh, you two would get on well then. Yeah. So at number, come on. Yes. I'm a Star Trek fan, snoring sorry. Now. Number three. <laughs> I'm a Star Trek person. <clears throat> anyway, number three, Cathay Pacific Airways. Uh, although Hong Kong-based Cathay Pacific no longer hold the top spot, the airline still managed to take the prize for best trans-Pacific airline. With a fleet of long-haul, uh, long-range Boeing 777-300ER jets and business strategies centred on offering high-frequency flights, Cathay is one of the finest flying experiences in Asia. Skytrax reviewers gave the airline high marks for seat comfort, service quality and in-flight entertainment. Number two. At number two, it's Singapore Airlines. 
so its standout service makes for a famously pleasant journey during which flight attendants are trained to treat customers with extreme care and respect. Personal TVs with uh, plenty of entertainment options and hot towels served before takeoff are just some of the economy perks. Economy perks? Wow. The airline home base at Changi International Airport is one of the finest facilities in the world and has been named Skytrax as the best airport in the world three years in a row. Wow, we should get we should get out more. So, in the coveted number one, number one, it's Qatar Airways. So, this is the third time Qatar has taken home the top honours, with the carrier also winning in 2011 and 2012. The Doha-based received praise from reviewers for its seat comfort and in-flight entertainment. In fact, the airline also took home the prize for best business class seats. Economy class guests get to enjoy the features like smartphone and tablet connectivity to their personal screens. Wow. And the airline links over 125 destinations across the globe and is expanding its services from Qatar to 50 new destinations, including direct flights to Los Angeles, Miami and Dallas. Wow. He's got the picture on there, actually, Matt, of that, uh, if you can see that on uh, on your screen there, of uh, the sort of the cabin there of the Qatar mm. Airways. It does look rather nice, doesn't it, with the mood lighting and stuff and the pillows. It, it, do, it does have that real sort of the, the sort of the dream rider sort of virgin feel about mm. it, doesn't it, with that mm. whole sort of... I quite feel, like the mood feel lighting. feel there should be a bar somewhere, you know. So that's where we bring the first news segment to a close then um, with that top 20. I hope you enjoyed that. So, uh, Matt's, uh, well, should we give the Skype a, a break? No, we better not give the Skype a break. <laughs> <laughs> yes. we drop well, it I, I need to go and get a drink, if nothing else. Okay. So we so, will have to just stop for a minute. Yes. So Matt's, uh, Matt's going to open the door on his greenhouse and let some uh, fresh air yes. in. And uh, I'm going to grab a drink and yes. we're going to yes. come back I'm, to you. I might just wander over to the BP garage and get myself a, a coffee. Uh, really? I think very quickly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's only, it's only opposite. So we're going to come back to you. After this, aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at planecrazydownunder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. we go. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the moment, though. <laughs> Not that we're two one up, and I'm enjoying that. In fact, isn't it? I'll be quiet. <laughs> I'm so glad we're I recording haven't, that. I haven't been watching the Ashes series at all. I should just stress. All oh, right, are we are we beating them then? We are beating them at the moment. Are we are we? ahead in the Ashes series. Are we beating Australia? They won't oh, notice. Okay. Sorry. Grant, if you're listening to this, and Steve, you know, really sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well. Look, there are, few, there are two 
sports that I watch. One is cricket, one is rugby. Oh, poor you. <laughs> All right. Normally they beat the rugby. I will give them that. But uh, of late we've been doing a little bit better on the cricket. Not so, that I'm enjoying that. Obviously. So we will, we will mention the cricket. <laughs> mm. we, we will. Yes, absolutely. Because normally they do. So... So we're back after a slight break. Uh, Matt has been to a. I know Matt's been to, Matt's been to a posh service station and uh, got himself some uh, some some rather nice uh, food and uh, beverages. And uh, I've just uh, I've just got myself a nice glass of something orange with ice in, courtesy of my wife. Thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying a rather large latte. It's very nice. A la- lat- late. Late, a lat- no, a latte, darling. Okay. Latte. <laughs> okay. So we are going to go move I on. Say, I just noticed as, right. as I walked up to the BP station, and I'm really sorry. This where I've parked is the most horrific place I've ever noticed. Next to the BP station on the A4, as you approach Heathrow, is a gentleman's club. That was an unexpected oh, surprise. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not here at night. <laughs> oh, aren't you? Oh, okay. I thought that's who, like, wait, I thought not, yes, where I, you're wait, I, waiting to pick uh, pick people up from for that. Yeah, no, sadly not. No, not unless they're coming out. Unless the club's really disappointing and they're leaving at quarter to four. Well, then no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, anyway, that was a bit of a surprise as I walked like ten yards up the road. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, sorry, but we are back, back on form. Airplanes. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we've got so we've got some. I had no idea that ca- caffeine would make such a difference to me. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, you got to love it. You I, love it. Is, oh, I hope it is just caffeine. I'm in serious trouble if it's not. Well, we'll know if the Skype suddenly What's drops What's in a latte out. again? It's just milk, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> strong coffee. Captain Jeff would like yeah, that yeah, strong coffee. So uh, we have got uh, <laughs> oh, dear, some military shut stories. Shut yeah, <laughs> we've got some military stories to uh, to do. And uh, we've got, uh, this week we're obviously giving Pip a break uh, from, oh, there goes the the coach door. We're giving Pip yes, a break from uh, the uh, his segment for another few weeks uh, while we get the uh, Ria interviews in. So, to, But I do know uh, from uh, chatting to Pip that he has got rather a nice segment for us coming up uh, in the near future. So looking forward to that oh. very much indeed. Um so let's move on then with the military aviation news. So uh, if you're ready, Matt. Oh, I very much am now, yes. Let's go. getting cloudy no the sun's still out though so very cloudy so first news story for our military segment then and on flight global site the australia's first h135 helicopter trainer gains factory acceptance so airbus helicopters has obtained factory acceptance for the first of 15 h135 rotorcraft bound for australia's helicopter aircrew training system or hats The aircraft will be shipped to Australia in January 2016 following the training of Boeing and Australian air crews and technicians in Donauwerth, Germany, says Airbus Helicopters. 
Boeing Defence Australia is the prime contractor for the HATS program, which will provide joint pilot training for Australia's Army and Navy helicopter pilots. In addition to the helicopters, the training system also includes flight simulators and seagoing training vessels with flight deck. Boeing emerged as the winner of Canberra's Air 9000 Phase 7 HATS program in November 2014. Now, this is one of the helicopters we use here in the UK. Uh, a lot of the police forces here in the UK use the 135. Yeah, it's and, got a real uh, sort of Eurocopter look about it. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. That is, uh, yeah, but it's based. It's on. It's based as a Eurocopter mm. in it, but it's, it's this one is um, slightly got the sort of the slightly bit larger nose kind of dome at the front there mm. for um, obviously training issues and stuff like that. But uh, no, good on the Australians. Well done. So next story. Absolutely. Actually, on that theme, uh, oh. moving straight on. Australia uh, again. Australia is still uh, in the news here. It is uh, flightglobal.com again. And the headline is Australia receives seventh C-17. Australia has taken delivery of its seventh Boeing C-17A strategic transport. The aircraft arrived at RAAF Amberley following uh, Canberra's announcement in uh, April 2015 that it would obtain two additional examples of the type, says Australia's Department of Defence in a statement. Uh, Canberra's uh, final example will arrive in late 2015. The active involvement of a number of United States and Australian agencies has been pivotal in meeting the successful delivery of its aircraft and I applaud everyone involved in the acquisition programme, says Minister for for Defence Kevin Andrews. With its proven ability to transfer heavy equipment, vehicles and helicopters in a short time frame. The C-17A's capabilities are vital to Australia's national security and safety. The RAAF has used the C-17 fleet to support military operations in the Middle East as well as humanitarian relief missions. It's, uh, it's all coming up Australia at the moment, isn't it? It is, yeah. Apart and from in the cricket. Now, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wonder whether the Australians paid the unit cost of around $220 million. Uh, U.S. dollars for their C-17s. That's that. I mean that. I mean that's that's quite a phenomenal amount of money, really. But uh, obviously, the uh, the Australians need these for uh, for their you know their defence capabilities and their their carrying of uh, large items and uh, and stuff around because Australia is a huge country, isn't it? Well, and also I, I think a lot. Of, I can see why because obviously they're they're tying this up based on experience they've had with the, the United States Air Force and things. Mm. And as more, more and more operations seem to be sort of coalition led, if you like, sort of either NATO or or, or a or a private coalition between a couple of countries, I can see uh, unfortunately a lot of. Uh, uh, military forces sort of all going down the same type of plane route. Do you know what I mean? Mm. No, it's a, it's a great. I've, I've, I haven't actually done it. I've seen a season. They're all working on. Oh no, he's still there, Matt. I am. Yes. Sorry. Oh, good. Good. There's a bit of a Skype. Stop talking. There was a Skype bubble <laughs> then. So next story, Flight Global again, and uh, yep. Embraer announces two-year delay for the KC three ninety. Now this is one of the transport aircraft we've covered a few times on the show. Uh, the Embraer three ninety. It's uh, kind of a sort of a mini Hercules with two jet engines. It's um, if you could sort of picture a, sm- a small Hercules with two jet engines. That's what the uh, Embraer um, KC three ninety. Yeah. Uh, so Embraer has delayed the certification for the KC three ninety tanker transport to the second half of two thousand seventeen and entry into service in two thousand eighteen. The disclosure in the company's second quarter earnings statement represents a delay of up to two years for the military aircraft. 
Embraer has uh, completed a highly publicized first flight of the KC-390 in Gavio Pixoto in Brazil last February, but it's not clear if the aircraft has made any other flights. The Embraer News release uh, says that the flight test campaign for the KC-390 will begin in the third quarter and last 18 to 24 months. Embraer has not yet disclosed how the delay will affect the cost of the development phase. The Brazilian Air Force has uh, launched the KC-390 development program in 2009, awarding Embraer a roughly $1.5 billion contract to build two prototypes. The Brazilian Air Force has also ordered 28 KC-390s to replace a fleet of aging Lockheed Martin C-130s. Embraer has also received commitments from five more countries to build 32 more aircraft. The KC-390 represents one of Embraer's most ambitious technology development programs, but that's not what the company originally intended. In 2006, Embraer had proposed a straightforward cargo derivative of the E-190 in response to possible interest from the Brazilian Postal Service. But the Brazilian Air Force stepped in and demanded a new aircraft that could perform all the same missions as the C-130. That led to a clean sheet design of Embraer's largest aircraft uh, developed to date. The aircraft includes fly-by-wire control systems, which uh, is the first to be integrated with a flight control computer by Embraer for the launch of the program. It's also powered by a pair of International Aero Engines B2500s and features a Rockwell Collins Proline Fusion Avionics system. That's a shame that delayed this aircraft. I mean, there's obviously they've got the reasons behind it, but... Um, you know, I think when they get this aircraft online, it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be popular. You know, for its size, it's obviously been made this sort of size with the power plants for short field uh, takeoffs. You know, on uh, short runways. Well, as as per usual, we're a bit lacking in detail as to why they've delayed it by a further mm. two years, haven't they? I mean, it's uh, it's something's obviously not worked out. I, I guess it's inevitable if you're having to start from scratch. You know, with originally planning to base it on, you know, on on a previous aircraft, and then being told no, we want, you know, we want a whole new design. Mm. I mean, that's. Um, but then know, look at the Dreamliner. I, you know, you you've got to recertify everything, haven't you? You know, we had the you had the delays, the huge delays with the seven eight seven Dreamliner with Boeing. Mm. You know, and they delayed it and delayed it, and yeah, you know, when it finally flew, there was issues. But you know, they're now sorted those issues out. Mm. And uh, it's a, it's a really great it's a good it's a great aircraft. So perhaps they're yeah. sort of delaying this just to iron out some uh, creases with the aircraft yeah. before they put it into full production and service. Yeah, true. true. So moving well, on, as I say, I don't suppose oh. we'll ever. No, sorry. Find out the <laughs> There's such story, a delay on say, but, uh, Moving on, uh, yes, it is flightglobal.com is the next site, and the headline is Egyptian Air Force receiving long awaited Lockheed F-16s. Egypt will receive eight Lockheed Martin F-16 Block 52 Vipers from the United States in the coming days following an uptick in diplomatic relations between the two nations. The US Embassy in Cairo says that eight jets will arrive at Cairo West Air Base by the 31st of July, followed by four more sometime between September and November. The eight, um, the eight uh, fighter jets are being flown in directly from the US and will be immediately integrated into the Egyptian Air Force, joining its existing fleet of US-made F-16 aircraft, according to a July 30th embassy statement. The announcement comes five months after US President Obama lifted a hold on fighter deliveries that have been in place since Egypt's military coup in October 2013. 
2015, which overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood amid mass protests. The embassy says the delivery is part of a wider $1.3 billion military assistance package announced earlier this year. And the aircraft will support Egypt's fight against terrorist groups in the region. Obama announced in March that a hold on Harpoon anti-airship, um, sorry, anti-ship missiles and M1A1 Abram tank assemblies would also be revoked. The 12 F-16s will join Egypt's eclectic combat flight force that includes more than 200 older F-16s and French uh, Dassault Mirage uh, 2000s and Mirage Vs. Or Mir- is it Mirage 5? Mirage, yeah. Mirage, sorry, Mirage 5s. The eight largest air Force, the eighth largest air force in the world, Egypt, also flies uh, Soviet-era uh, Mikoan, Mikoan, MiG-21s, uh, fish beds, and China Chengdu J-7 interceptors. The F-16 delivery coincides with Egypt's introduction in, uh, of the Dassault Rafale um, with three aircraft delivered earlier this month. The two dozen Vipers were part of a larger 20 aircraft order placed uh, in 2010 and Prizes of 16 C models and four twin-seat D models powered by Pratt & Whitney's F-100 engines. The aircraft were produced at Lockheed's F-16 factory in uh, Fort Worth in Texas, which is currently building aircraft for Iraq and Block 60 variants of the United Arab Emirates. So it's good news for Lockheed then if, they're, uh, if the, embark- the, you know, the ban has been lifted. Mm. Um, they can um, sort of start fulfilling a few orders. I mean, it just goes to show this this aircraft. We've said before the F sixteen is 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 quite an old aircraft. Now, I mean, the mm, first geez, it's been about for years. Yeah, the first flight of the uh, the F sixteen was in January nineteen seventy four. Would you believe, mm. Matt? Um, introduced into service in nineteen seventy eight. So, I mean, yeah, this aircraft's been around for a lot of years. But as we, you know, as this story proves, you know, there's um, there's still a, a need and a demand for this particular type of aircraft because yeah. it has been proven to be a very, very good tactical fighting aircraft. Yeah. Well, I can tell you how, you know, to give you an idea of how old the F-16 is. I mean, back in the day when I used to live in a little village called Denton at Firtree Farm and I had a, 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 an Atari 520 ST oh, God, and I used to me. have on floppy dick. I used to have an F-16 flight simulator, um, and that was my prized game at the time. And that was, I mean, that was an alarming amount. Of, that must have been in the 90s, so sort of late 80s, early 90s. So it gives you an idea of, uh, of how, lo- how long they've, they've, been, uh, they've been in service. Did you say 76? Yeah, uh, it's 1978 they were introduced into service. And first flew in 1974, but there's and they're uh, still a popular aircraft even now, aren't they? Oh yeah, there's uh, in the world at the moment there are 25 different countries using these aircraft, um, and there's been to date uh, just over four and a half thousand of these aircraft produced, which is pretty yeah. good. Well, oh, it's t- time to move on to the final story then and I see the Russians have been up to uh, their old tricks again by the look of it. (laughs) The Royal Air Force website then brings us the last story then and the Royal Air Force typhoons intercept 10 Russian aircraft in one mission. So on Friday the 24th of July as part of NATO's ongoing mission to police Baltic airspace uh, RAF typhoons intercepted 10 Russian aircraft during a single Baltic air patrol quick reaction alert mission. 
the Typhoon aircraft from 6th Fighter Squadron RAF Lossiemouth were launched after multiple groups of aircraft were detected by NATO air defences in international airspace near to the Baltic states. Once airborne, the RAF jets identified the aircraft as four uh, fullbacks, or Sukhoi Su-34 fighters, uh, four Foxhound or Mikoyan MiG-31 fighters, and two Antonov AN-26 Curl transport aircraft, who appeared to be carrying out a variety of routine training. The Russian aircraft were monitored by the RAF typhoons and escorted on their way. Once more, the RAF and our state-of-the-art typhoon fighters have demonstrated our commitment to NATO collective defence. Air interceptions such as uh, this highlight the vital importance of the UK's contribution to the Baltic Air Policing Mission and demonstrate our collective resolve to protect NATO airspace alongside... Oh, pardon me, alongside alloy, allies. Um, it's on the website. If you can go on, if you go and get a chance to go on here on the uh, Royal Air Force um, or RAF.mod.uk site, uh, there's some really good pictures on here that, uh, mm. that they've put on here. Um, and there's a couple on here which obviously taken by the pilots um, of our typhoons. Uh, one of them showing uh, the MIGs, um, three of the MIGs on the uh, the photos here. And also one of the uh, the transport plane as well, and you can see actually, Matt, if you look at the photos of the MIGs, can you see that the they, mm. they have the sort of blue rather than a normal kind of grey military kind of normal patterning? Yeah, the uh, the Russians MIGs have got this kind of blue and white kind of like well, it's like a cloud really, it's like a sky it sky. Is, it almost of, matches um, the colours of the sky that it's flying through, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it looks quite good. I quite like that actually. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, but what are they up to? <laughs> Well, it, yeah. you know, <laughs> perhaps they're just taking selfies. There's, there's going to be an incident. <laughs> the way things are carrying on, though, at some point, somebody's, you know, so they're going to push their luck too far and then somebody's going to get a bit trigger happy and then one gets shot out of the sky. And then before you know where we are, we've got a massive diplomatic incident. Oh, well, hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully I'll just... No, be, oh, it's, it's, oh, somebody's pushing their luck, though. Do you know oh. what I mean? It's like, because these are getting more and more frequent, aren't they? These, these, uh, in, Interceptions. Sorry, we've just got a light aircraft just flew over the right over the top of the house here. Ooh, what was it? Come on, out with your um. Have they got their transponder on? No, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's a little little Piper Cub, so it's just flown over here. I was just saying to Matt before we came back on air that uh, we had a really nice uh, vintage. A biplane fly over the house. Just mm. uh, we are lucky, me and Matt, where we live here in the east of England. We are very lucky that in that because uh, it's uncontrolled airspace here that we do get a lot of GA uh, aircraft flying over, and you do get quite a good mixture of um, of aircraft flying over here, uh, as well as passenger get, aircraft. So you you get you get quite a few of uh, a few little Cessnas with Carlos at the wheel as well. Sometimes <laughs> yes, over, so. yes, you do. <laughs> Oh. When's your next lesson, by the way? Uh, next lesson is ooh, August. It's what we're in August now. We, it, I think, we yeah. off the top of my head, I'm pre- I think it's next week, the eighth. Yes, ooh, cool. yes, next lesson. I think there's some more solo time going to be happening there as well. So, mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Oh, yes. I bet you are. Time once again, then for another segment from React. 2015. We've got three interviews for you again this time. Uh, and first up, we have Lieutenant Commander Patrick Mitchell. He was the U.S. Navy. Second up was, I think, your favourite display actually of the whole weekend, if I if I recall, Carlos. And that was the Osprey. The Osprey. That was Captain Tony Bella- yeah. Bellaresso. And 
finally, um, well, I think you and Pippen had far too much fun with this. This was Captain Tony Payne, uh, and he was the captain of BA's um, Airbus A318. Yes, that's coming up now. joined by Lieutenant Commander Patrick Mitchell. Well, thanks very much for giving up a few minutes to, uh, to come and talk to us at our various podcasts. So uh, you're here at the Riyadh Asher. Are you having a good time so far? Absolutely. It's fantastic. Is this your first time here? First time for me, yes. Not the first time for our squadron or this airplane. Okay. And this is just a static display, right? You're not flying? It's a static display. We're uh, giving some uh, tours to various uh, members of the UK military and government. Okay, great. And what's your role on, on the team here? tactical coordinator so i'm a naval flight officer uh, sit with the uh, other four operators middle of the aircraft and we run the tactical situation depending on what the mission is okay and tell us just a little bit about the aircraft it looks uh, a lot like a 737 is would that be a fair assessment it's a 737 800 series with a 900 series wings so what you see on the outside looks a lot like a boeing 737 on the inside obviously it's completely different I'm sure there's a lot of uh, specialized equipment uh, for the role you do. I mean, what sort of role does this aircraft perform? That's a Eurofighter Typhoon just there. Thanks for the RAF. <laughs> it's an AGM-84 Delta. It's a harpoon missile, so surface to or air-to-surface missile. Uh, it's used it's for uh, for ships, for shooting ships rather than self-defense. Anti-ship missile, yes. We also have a weapons bay aft where we can carry torpedoes. Does it have any self-defense capability? We have a very robust self-defense capability. So the, the, air, the aircraft itself is, uh, I'll take it the engines are, are the same as the civilian version of CFM? Absolutely. Those are right off the shelf, so we can fly anywhere in the world. And if, uh, the, the engines are highly, highly reliable air, uh, engines, but we do have Boeing reach throughout the world to get replacement engines. Excellent. This aircraft, does it come straight off the shelf? Uh, like this is brand new, built like this? There's an actual P-8 line in Seattle, Washington that makes a fuse. terms of airframe engines uh, systems this is a standard 737 or does it have any special adaptions for, for your role well it's it's obviously a stronger fuselage for self-protection and it also has a the 900 series wings that give it a little stiffer ride uh, you can see the uh, the swept back portion of the wing um, but it's, it's meant to fly down two three hundred feet off the water and not give you that big flex that a commercial wing would and so how many, what's the sort of crew composition? How many guys are on board? Nine. So I'll have three pilots, two flight officers, and then two acoustic operators and two electronic warfare officers. Okay. And why three pilots? Uh, 
just because our mission set typically will fly in excess of 10 hours, it's just to kind of rotate. Uh, we have an off-duty pilot rest area, so we can rotate the pilots through and keep them fresh. As, as a military operator, do you have flight time limitations like uh, it, an airline would? As long, yes and no. There's, that's a good question. Uh, with, with the current configuration where it's not refuelable, we're, the only limitation is how long we can go with the, the gas to, to get home. So we can fly in excess of 10 hours, and we'll do it with the same crew on board. Uh, there's a future capability for in-flight refueling, and then we'll have to talk about how long a crew day can be at that point uh-huh. as a community. Okay. So did you do the hop across in one, in one uh, complete trip to the UK? We actually, we actually went further. We went from uh, the United States to Poland first, uh, one, le- one set of legs, and that's uh, with a full crew and all our, our maintenance detachments. We flew over her with 16 individuals, all full maintenance support equipment. Tow bar is actually upstairs, brought our own tow bar, so that's the beauty of this aircraft is you can be self-sufficient. Maintenance and uh, air crew get you from the United States to pretty much anywhere in the world uh, in a day, maybe maybe two days. Some, um, um, the standard crew you're carrying along these gentlemen here and ladies in the uh, the blue camouflage gear. What, what's their role there? That's our maintenance support team. Well, maintenance. Yep. Okay. So that's the uh, standard na- uh, Navy working uniform that our maintainers wear. And they would fly together as, as part of a normal mission? No, they would not fly on the mission. That's just for the air show, right? They, they come uh, with us as passengers and then they'll stay on the ground when we're going out and doing missions. So I guess you guys have got a full galley on board with all the uh, cooking or stuff you need. It actually, if you walk on the airplane, it has a, a 737 small galley. It's not, it's not full up for a, a full 737 crew, but we do have the ability to cook food, refrigerate food, and we have a full working lavatory. So you have great meals on the way over. You cannot. You, it's what you bring is what you what you have, and some crews are more creative than others with their in-flight meals. So it's what your wife packs you up. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention: we do have three uh, Royal Air Force members of our crew. We have about ten back in our squadron. So I don't know if you can see me right now, but we brought three with us. We have two pilots, two flight officers, and two acoustic and two non-acoustic guys that are integrated in our squadron. So they're working to uh, preserve the anti-submarine warfare, that maritime patrol capability that the UK uh, lost when they got rid of the Iran. Oh, yeah. We, we know all about that, definitely, yeah. We've lost a lot here in the UK, for definite. I think it's a standard thing. We, we quite regularly right, have exchange programs between the, uh, the Air Force, the Navy, and the UK forces as well. In fact, it was just in the news this week that British pilots are flying uh, US Navy F-18s engaged in Syria which caused a bit of an uproar here in the UK, but it's, uh, yeah, it's something that's been going on for a, n- a number of years, I think, isn't it? The, the exchange programs between various NATO countries. Uh, one of our U.S. pilots actually did a three-year stint with the Australian uh, Air Force flying the P-3. So, yeah, we it, it brings all the countries, the allies, together, and it also allows us to, to share knowledge and experience. And this is really important, right, because it's a, a, a NATO package, you're flying together, you're working together, and you all got to be reading off the same hymn sheet, so you've got to know each other's procedures and, and how you all work, and you've got to share information. Absolutely, and, and having the 10 UK, or the RAF uh, gentlemen here, and then we have about 10 or 12 down in Jacksonville, Florida, working at our schoolhouse, invaluable sharing of resources, knowledge, and experience, and it's just going to pay off down the road. Absolutely. Well, listen, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Noisy F-18. I guess we're going to put up with that. But listen, thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the air show. Thanks, guys.
guys. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thanks. So I'm standing next to the CB22B Osprey, and uh, that's which is based at RF Mildenhall. It's one of the uh, aircraft we feature on quite a lot on our show, and I'm standing next to uh, Captain Tony Baldi, sir. Your uh, your particular role in the uh, in operation of this aircraft, uh, pilot. And uh, did you uh, come straight across, or your, or actually from uh, Mildenhall straight to the base here, or uh, over there on Friday or Thursday? Uh, Thursday night. Thursday night. Yep, we drove over. So the aircraft itself, tell us a bit about the uh, the Osprey then. How, what's uh, what's it like to fly and uh, what's the capabilities and stuff like that? Uh, so incredibly capable aircraft. Uh, you know, we use it for long-range infiltration, exfiltration, special operations forces. Uh, it's super fun to fly because you kind of get a, a great mix of being an airplane sometimes and a helicopter sometimes and get to hover around and do all that kind of stuff as well as uh, do some pretty uh, interesting missions. So uh, it can be very difficult to fly, but it's, uh, it's definitely fun to fly. Definitely. Now, for those of you who don't know the Osprey, this is a... How would you describe it? A part aeroplane, part helicopter, right? Yeah, so we, we call it a tilt rotor aircraft, uh, but basically yeah, we, we take off uh, mostly like a helicopter and land like a helicopter, but uh, then our, our engines and, uh, and rotors transition down uh, and come kind of flat, and then you become an airplane as you're flying around. So, so what's your training background? Are you a fixed wing or a helicopter? Yeah, so I, I trained on helicopters. However, we have pilots uh, in the community that came only from fixed wing. Um, and then we have some that came from helicopters. So it's kind of a mixed bag depending on who's flying that day. But uh, everyone kind of learns how to hover uh, and use. And, and with, the, with the ability to move the, uh, the rotors, it's, it's kind of its own animal anyways. So everyone uh, gets a good feel for, for kind of both type of flying. And for the guys coming from the fixed wing, is that quite a challenge for them to kind of get into the helicopter way of thinking? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, but that's what we have the training for. Yeah, I think most of them would say it was uh, it was a, a jump for them at first. But uh, you know, everyone once you get the the hang of, of a tilt rotor and, and how to move the nacelles and utilize them uh, for your benefit, I think everyone kind of gets the hang of it. So I think it was a jump for them, but uh, they all love it now. Everyone loves to hover. Okay. So I mean, we can kind of see how it is powered in a helicopter point of view. The the rotors tilt down and you get thrust going down like you would from a helicopter. But when you transition into level flight and it's acting as an aeroplane. Where's the lift coming from? Is that from? Uh, are we calling those things wings? Yes, we are. We are calling them wings. And, and uh, aerody- aerodynamic services—they're creating yeah, yeah. lift, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. Does all the lift come from the wings, or are you kind of using a bit as well from the, from the from the rotors? Uh, no, at that point, it's it's the wings themselves. But the the rotors are obviously forcing a lot of air over the top of the wings uh, when they're down in that position. So it's pretty well a fully conventional fixed wing aeroplane once you're in the cruise. Yes, just with uh, the ability to stall a little quicker because of how tiny the wings are. And, and tell us, what was your what is your background in the uh, in the uh, Air Force? I've only been V-22s, came out of you know Air Force pilot training, uh, flew T-6 Texans, and then I flew uh, the Bell Helicopter Kiwi, the UH-1, uh, in training, and then came immediately to the V-22. Okay. And do you mind me asking how old you are? Yeah, I'm 26. Okay. Is that uh, a fairly sort of typical age for guys on the Osprey? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the younger guys probably, but um, generally coming out of pilot training, people are like 24-ish around then. It takes about another year of training only on the Osprey. So, yeah, we're getting... Um, I mean, really, I could be younger, to be honest. We got a couple guys that are 24-ish that fly. Yeah. Um, Where's home for you? New Hampshire, USA. New England, yeah. yeah New okay, England. that's yep. part of the world. Yep. Quite well. So the actual uh, tr- flight training to uh, train to fly this particular aircraft, the Osprey, is that a very lengthy process, learning how to fly? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the longer courses we have in, in the Air Force as far as aircraft go. It's about a year-long course. Uh, 
where uh, it's, it was a long year, but it was uh, you know it's fun. You learn all kinds of new new ways to, to put this aircraft into into play and, and utilize it appropriately. Is this aircraft flying later on in the display? This one is not, but one of our sister ships is coming over. Yep. Are you part of the crew for that aircraft, or are you flying one? No, nope. we're just here with the static. We flew in yesterday, and we're flying out Monday, or excuse me, Thursday. And then uh, one of the crews back at home are just flying over back and forth from Mildenhall, just doing the air show, and then flying back to Mildenhall. Let me ask you, how do you find flying around in UK airspace? It's obviously a little bit more congested than uh, maybe what you're used to in the U.S., Certainly, and you know um, we're a low-level aircraft, right? So we're we're trying to do uh, low-level stuff. So in, in the UK has a fairly complicated low-fly system, but uh, they've they've been very good about uh, helping, working with us, booking us into places, uh, getting SLZs and stuff. And as we start working more with the UK forces, uh, everyone's been really really good about letting us uh, kind of do what we need to do. Uh, you know, most of our most of our job is at night, and so we train at night, and uh, we do our best as well to kind of stay a little bit high level, especially because there's so many people all around that, uh, and we're, we can be pretty loud occasionally. So we, we try to do our best to uh, as a noise abatement techniques as much as possible in the East Anglia area, and then, uh, but yeah, the UK low fly system has been uh, great about booking us into certain areas and, and allowing us to do our work. And I guess obviously. Um, you have some procedures for deconflicting you with with other military traffic, with other uh, UK forces, but mixing it in with some of the, the civilian traffic. I mean, do you ever have any close run-ins with the little Cessnas and puddle jumpers? Yeah, yeah. Um, so occasionally, but most most of the, the the guys that are flying around in the, in the low fly system are, are knowledgeable pilots. So you know, and and we're a big target. So I, I haven't had any really close calls around here. I've had more close calls in the U.S. with people not on radios and not uh, up on uh, what we call TCAS and stuff like that. Do but you have TCAS on this thing? We do. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. What did you do? But I, I guess seeing a void is still a big part of your job. Especially yeah. You got to be looking outside, for sure. Yeah, and low level, you got to be outside the aircraft as much as possible. And we have, you know, the two pilots, and then there's a tail gunner as well, and he's always scanning as well for uh, for other traffic. But so um, it's a crew of three, is that correct? Crew of four. Crew of four. Two so pilots, two tail gunners. Yep. Two yeah, yeah. So uh, one of which sits in between the two pilots in the cockpit, and then one is on the tail, and he'll run the hoist, the fast rope, and the gun. Okay, okay. Listen, just before we finish up, just before we talk to you, we were looking at these these things on the on the uh, in the center of the propeller. There are those little counterbalances on the on yeah, the uh, spinner. Dampeners. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. Yeah, they uh, they they basically dampen out the vibes uh, that the rotors create, so they kind of swing back and forth and try to uh, basically yeah, dampen out those vibrations. Very nice. So all in all, you enjoy flying the Osprey? I love flying the Osprey. I really do, yeah. It's fast. I hear it's, it's quite fast in, uh, in flight. Yeah, so we do about, uh, our max speed's 280. We really, we generally cruise around about 210, 220 knots. Yeah, uh, and that's cast, so that's really around 230 ground, right in around there. Okay. Slightly faster than my Cessna 150. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if you catch up to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if uh, if the Air Force calls you up tomorrow and says, "Sorry, you need to," we're getting rid of the Ospreys, but you can have your choice of anything else. What what would you choose? Oh wow, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I'll tell you what, I love flying helicopters, uh, so I would I'd probably maybe pop over to our uh, our Blackhawks or something like that. But uh, I don't think we're going away anytime soon, so I'm not worried about it. This was my first choice out of pilot training, got what I wanted, and uh, I'm very excited about it. Well, Excellent. You got any more questions? No, I'm good. I'm good. No, it's been been very good to talk to you. Thanks for your time and uh, talking about the Osprey. I'm sure the listeners are going to absolutely love listening to uh, to your information <laughs> about the aircraft. Yeah, so thanks ever so much for uh, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Thank, thank you. Bye bye.
and uh, we have been very, very privileged indeed uh, to uh, come on board uh, the Airbus A318 of uh, British Airways. And uh, with us is Captain... Tony Payne. Yes, thanks for coming on the show, Tony. And uh, so, basically, uh, the aircraft we're on then, uh, this is the aircraft that does the the New York flight uh, from London City Airport? It does. The aircraft flies twice a day uh, from London City Airport to New York JFK. And how long does that flight uh, take this aircraft? Uh, it's generally, uh, it does a, a stop for uh, refueling in Shannon. Uh, from Shannon to JFK, it's generally about six and a half, six hours, 40. Excellent. Tell us, if you can, just a little bit about the aircraft. This is an Airbus A318, correct? It is. It's an Airbus A318, which is the smallest of the A320 series of aircraft. Uh, so it's a little bit shorter than the A319, has a slightly taller, taller fin to compensate for that. And this particular A318, we've got two like this, is equipped to fly steep approach landings, which means it can operate into and out of London City Airport. Uh, and they're unique in that respect. And what is it... Um that makes this steep approach capable compared to another uh, A318? There are a couple of aerodynamic modifications that allow it to fly that steep approach. So uh, effectively, the aircraft is equipped with uh, a system that allows the spoilers on the wings to be deployed uh, for the approach, uh, which allows it to fly that steeper profile uh, without accelerating, which would normally happen if an aircraft of this size uh, were to fly a five and a half degree angle, which is uh, what's required to get into London City. Um, so you have to have a little bit more drag to fly that profile. We have a modified flight control system that allows us to do that by using the spoilers on the wing on the approach. Okay. And I, I've flown into the city many times. Is the uh, Airbus, is it quite easy to handle going into London City? Obviously it's a, a, almost double the normal approach angle. It is. It's a, it's a delightful aircraft to fly. Flight control, the electronic flight control system is extremely good. Uh, and in actual fact, it's a... a, a a very good aircraft to handle into London City. Uh, pilots who've been used to flying the Airbus, we normally put experienced pilots, experienced Airbus pilots onto this uh, sub-fleet, um, and pilots are able to get to grips with the steep approach landing very, very quickly. Uh, so the flight control system uh, works really well, uh, allows the pilots to, to quickly adapt to the steeper approach angle. Um, they do an additional, tr- additional training course to prepare them for that, but it's a very easy transition. And are the guys typically coming across from, from the long-range fleets? They're familiar with, with the longer range, the Nats tracks and all the rest of it? No, the, uh, the guys who come onto this fleet are experienced Airbus pilots. So um, we take our most experienced Airbus pilots flying the A320 series, uh, of which obviously this aircraft is, is one of, um, and we uh, will then train them to fly the, the 318. Okay. And aside from the, the couple of modifications you mentioned, is there anything else that makes this different from a, a standard uh, A318? The main thing is the, the interior, as you uh, can see looking around you. Um, the uh, aircraft interior is significantly different from a normal narrow-bodied Airbus, so we have 32 seats only. Normally, if this was in a, in a, a normal uh, narrow-body layout for operating around Europe, it would be something, something in the region of 94 seats, but we only have 32 of these uh, uh, club beds uh, in the aircraft. So that's the, the big difference, is it's really a, an exclusive uh, executive service. So looking around uh, if uh, this aircraft, what most people see is that it actually looks like the interior of a, an executive jet. Uh, and that's the kind of ambience we're going, we're going for. It's a very exclusive service, um, uh, and that's really the big obvious difference. Yeah. Uh, do you know typically what a, a ticket will cost in New York? Not offhand. 
offhand. Okay. And can I ask, this is the, the Riyadh Air Show is obviously a, a primarily a, a military air show. So what are you guys doing here? What's your role here this weekend? Um, we're here to showcase the aircraft. Um, uh, and uh, it's it's partly to uh, involve with an event involving our uh, recruitment of uh, new apprentices, which we're uh, very keen on. Excellent. I'd, lo- I'd love to go from the Cessna 150 to this. But I think I'm, I'm a, bit, a little bit uh, too old, I reckon, now, at my older years. But uh, So a bit about yourself, Tony. How did things all start for you as a young age flying or an interest in flying start young? I did when I was in my teens. I, I uh, started flying from Biggin Hill Airfield in Kent um, and uh, got bitten by the bug there, I suppose. And um, I then... Uh, was keen initially I wanted to uh, become an aeronautical engineer then I realized actually flying them was what I really wanted to do so um, uh, after a, a few years working in the financial industry I was uh, gone on to what was then the British Airways cadet scheme we now call it the future pilot program um, and I was lucky to uh, be awarded a place at Oxford Air Training School through that so oh, fantastic to British Airways and you've been here for how long uh, 20 some odd years okay so obviously you've flown other aircraft with british airways care to no, name some of them no i have been on the a320 fleet for my entire career wow. i love it it's such a good aircraft um i i've never thought of going anywhere else so i'm a, I'm a dedicated a320 specialist wow. that must make you one of the more senior pilots then on the uh, 320 fleet at ba that's right so uh, as uh, we've been uh, talking about in our show previous episodes uh, obviously, BA have now got their A380s. Um, have you had a chance to go on board the A380 at BA? I haven't yet, actually. I've been in the flight simulator, but I've not had a chance to go on board the, um, the actual aircraft yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> Would you like to go to the A380? Or you're, you're set on the, because obviously the, the, the style of flying you're doing is fairly similar. Long-haul stuff It's just a, a slightly different aeroplane. Would that not tickle your fancy? Maybe one day, never say never, but at the moment I love flying the 318. It's a unique operation, it's quite challenging flying. Um, I'm involved with the training on this fleet, uh, and, and it's, it's it's one of the most interesting routes and one of the most interesting operations in the whole of civil aviation. I love being involved with it, and so for the time being, I'm going to stick here. Okay, so you're a uh-huh. training captain, correct? Uh, yes, I am, yeah. Okay, but I suppose you're not having any of the cadets come through your your sphere of influence I, I do because I also train on the short haul um, A320 series so yes I, I do uh, get involved with FPP training okay. can I ask you very briefly then what, what do you think or what, how do you find the quality of the guys coming out of the flight schools these days compared to when you started 20 something years ago uh, I, I think the guys coming out of the flight schools are very good I think it's given them ec- an excellent start um, they're very enthusiastic obviously when they, when they come out uh, and they're a real joy to work with in the training environment Oh, great. Well, Tony Payne, thanks ever so much for giving us the time and the chance to come on board uh, this the A318. That's uh, definitely my first time, and for you as well, I think, Pip. It certainly is. I, I've seen them at London City many times, and I must say it's gorgeous inside. So, Tony, thanks for your time on coming on the Plane Talking UK podcast and the Plane Safety podcast as well. And uh, all the best for the future and for your rest of the time at React this year. Thanks very much. Enjoy Thank you.
Well, that was brilliant. We really enjoyed that. And uh, again, Thank all you. the pilots were, were just absolutely brilliant, you know, accommodating. Oh, and, I, um, they were so generous with mm. their time, weren't they? They were, just, they were just willing to sort of chat away. And, you know, I don't think we got any, you know, country secrets or anything like that. But it was great to, uh, to hear them go into such detail about, especially with the Osprey, you know, such detail about how it flies and... You know, I, I'd never really thought of it as, as being looked upon as, as a plane rather than a helicopter because it's got a real helicopter feel about it, mm, obviously, with, mm. the two, with the two ropes on either end. But uh, no, no, they were, they were all so good to us, really. No, so we hope you enjoyed those uh, next uh, installments. And we've got, uh, we've got a few more to go, haven't we, really? We've got at least another have, yeah. two, another three episodes. Weeks, yeah, yeah, another two weeks of interviews uh, to come from Riyadh. We thought we'd space them out rather than put them all into one show so you could yeah. kind of... Uh, Kind of enjoy every enjoy me and Matt as well as the interviews. Yes, it makes life a bit easier <laughs> for me as well, which is the main reason why we're yeah. putting them out in small segments. But anyway, <laughs> so we have uh, got some shout outs then to make uh, for the show. We've had uh, an email from uh, listener Matthew Myatt. Uh, he's from the UK, and uh, Matthew sent us in a uh, video, and this was taken at uh, Riyadh at uh, Fairford this year, and it's showing uh, airborne aviation aircraft Golf uh, Charlie Charlie Yankee Romeo arriving at uh, Riyadh this year uh, on the Wednesday. He sent us uh, a video, a YouTube video there, which which is brilliant. Uh, so thanks for that, uh, Matthew. And uh, you've got a few shout-outs as well, I think, Matt? Yeah. Just uh, just a quick shout out to Giles Flat. He's busy at work, um, but uh, I was talking to him this morning, and he said, "Oh, give us a shout on the show." So I shall do that. And of course, we mustn't forget to say thank you very much to Rob Rusted, who's uh, now now our, our our voice, if you like, that, that does the <laughs> intros on our um, on 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 the start of the show. So uh, thank you very much. You'll, you'll be hearing a lot more of him as as and when we uh, we uh, do the various segments. Obviously, there's a new one to look forward to when when Pitt returns with his uh, plane safety yes um, definitely segment. So. Uh, and also a mention to David Barnshaw as well. Hello to you, mm-hmm. David. Alison Standring as well. Uh, obviously, we've got to mention, as we do, Ray Davis. Thanks, Ray. Ray does send us some quite uh, awesome videos and messages through uh, Facebook. So thanks, Ray Davis, for that. And also Jerry Brooker-Kane as well. And Kevin Graham. And, uh, yes, yeah, thanks, all you guys, for... Uh, for sending us little notifications on Facebook. It's always good to hear from listeners. So, Matt, where... It certainly is, yeah. So if you want to get in touch with the show, don't uh, be afraid. Don't be shy. We like to hear from you. We want all your feedback, whether it be good or bad. The ways to get in touch with the show are www.plaintalking.com uk.com that's the website facebook.com forward slash plain talking uk and of course our twitter handle is at plain talking uk yes don't forget contact the show send us your feedback we want to hear from you and uh, we hope you enjoyed episode number 70 one one <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's been a, it's been a uh, long day is that the excuse i can use no not really yeah, long, after- oh, long yeah. afternoon Listen to him. Long afternoon in the garden, watching the garden. his wife paint. Oh, I know, yeah. I know. Everybody's heart bleeds for you. Oh, I know. <laughs> so that's where we're going to bring episode 71 of the uh, Plain Talking UK podcast yeah, quick, to a close. The link falls down. I know. Quick, quick. <laughs> before Matt goes bit, 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 bit anymore. And uh, so thanks, Matt, for uh, coming on uh, online from your. Uh, your, your mobile studio in BT. Yeah, yes, literally. <laughs> yeah. One day, I will take this on tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So don't forget, join us next week then for episode number 72 of the show. We'll be back again, uh, bringing you loads more news. And don't forget, do send us your messages as uh, Matt gave you all the details there. Send us your stuff through. We want to hear from you. So that's it then from me, Carlos, here in sunny Bungie on the east coast of the UK. It's a, well, a pleasant goodbye. And from me sitting on a lay-by uh, on the A4 right near a BP petrol station, it's a rather cloudy and uh, unpleasant uh, sort of afternoon, I think that's safe to say, right in, under uh, Heathrow's flight path. Um, but because the cloud base is so low, I've been able to see absolutely nothing. So uh, it was well worth me parking up here to do the show. God, right. On that note then, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs>